You're listening to the Team Guru Podcast, bringing to life the theory and principles of leadership. Hello and welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. This is episode 42. GetUp is Australia's most powerful grassroots political organisation. Since their foundation in 2005, GetUp has been giving conservative politicians a massive headache. Arguably, the greatest impact they've ever had on an election was in the most recent one, the 2016 federal election, where, for the first time, GetUp targeted the individual seats of the people they saw as the most extreme right-wing members of the Liberal and National parties. And they caused a massive stir and claimed a number of scalps like Andrew Nikolic and some huge swings against high-profile ministers like Peter Dutton. My guest on this episode of the podcast is the mastermind behind that brave campaign, Get Up National Director, Paul Oosting. In the conversation you're about to hear, Paul tells us all about what it takes to lead a grassroots campaign. How Get Up tap into the passions and fears of their members and open opportunities for meaningful action. Paul gives us the inside story on the conversations and the thinking that led to Get Up's 2016 election strategy, and he tells us all about the issues that matter to his members and the politicians who are standing in the way. I also ask him how he got the job as the fourth national director of Get Up. He stepped in to a high-profile role in an organisation that has growing influence on the political conversations and policy outcomes. He tells us about his dreams for the future of GetUp and the legacy he wants to leave. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Paul Oosting. Welcome to the Team Guru podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Paul, GetUp played a massive role in the uh, federal election in July. You must be really pleased with the impact that you had and the attention that you got as an organization after that election. Absolutely. I mean, we're just really wrapped as a movement of people from across the country to have the work that we did validated because sometimes you can work really hard in politics and in many other fields of social change and not see the results. But this campaign, I think, was marked by the fact that we had thousands of people from across Australia taking action together. And at the end of the day, we had a really clear and targeted strategy to take out members of the hard right of politics. And we succeeded. We, you know, we saw their response after the election, um, validating what we'd achieved together. And that, I think, really you know, builds the confidence of what we've achieved and hopefully what we can do into the future. I'm really keen to talk about that strategy soon because it it's so interesting. And I'll ask you that in the context of your two predecessors. But before we get to that, I just want to point out that almost straight after the election, Corey Bernardi announced the formation of the Australian Conservatives, almost something that he saw as an answer on the right to get up. That must be quite flattering for you. It is. And it's not the first time that Corey Bernardi has done that, funnily enough. You know, get up also had a big impact 
in the 2010 election campaign um, in a different way was from some high court cases we'd taken to allow Australians to enrol to vote online and to extend the voting period. And after the election where uh, you know the, the coalition had uh, lost, we had Corey Bernardi and Erica Betts and others come out and say, oh, look, you know, GetUp's had a huge impact here. We conservatives need our own version. And they formed a group called Can Do in 2010 and, and it never went anywhere. It sort of fizzled out. And so we've seen the same thing again this time around that, um, you know, they've seen the impact that an organization, a movement of people like GetUp can create. And they've said, oh, we're going to go out there and do our own thing. But I think the reason it fizzled out last time and why I think it might do the same again is they're sort of not really grappling with the fundamentals of what we're trying to achieve here, which is giving everyday people a chance to engage in politics. They think whether we're some sort of front group for other parties or other interests mm. where, where in fact we're not. We're, we're trying to reflect the sort of way that people want to engage in politics and, and what they expect of their politicians. And, and that's why I think people do engage with GetUp and, and they don't so much with the major political parties as they used to. And they certainly don't when they can see that um, something fake or tricky is going on, as is the case, I think, with some of the attempts with those conservative groups that they've tried to start up. I read an article, I think it was in the Financial Review, where you, you were quoted as saying something along those lines. This is not the first time Corey Bernardi's tried this and it hasn't worked in the past. You've just said there the, the reason that it hasn't worked in the past is because they just don't get it. They don't get what get up, pardon the pun, is all about and, and the way that you've gone about it. Where do you think the misunderstanding is on the right? I mean, not that you'd want to coach them through it. You don't want any opposition, I'm guessing, but what doesn't Corey Bernardi get about the way you operate? Yeah, well, I think there's two things. I mean, and, and, and to a degree, we are quite happy to have a more opposition if it's genuine democratic participation. I mean, that's one of our values and we actually welcome it. We welcome more people getting involved in politics. We think it's a good thing. We're not always going to agree with what people are campaigning for, but that's not to say that we shouldn't encourage other people to get involved in politics and have a say. You know, we... When we go and run campaigns to, for instance, increase the um, ease in which people can enroll to vote and things like that, we know that conservatives will also be enrolling to vote and having their say as well. And that's that's okay. That's um, what democracy is all about. We want to encourage debate within our society. But the things that they don't get, I think, the sort of two things. The one that I mentioned there is that they, I don't think they're approaching people with authenticity and being genuine about wanting to have a grassroots movement, to have grassroots participation, where which in necess- necessitates giving some control over to the membership to do things like set the agenda or to be able to participate in the way that they want. And then I guess secondly, you know, I think that the issues that we work on really appeal to a lot of Australians. You know, we work to try and transition Australia to 100% renewable energy. 70 or 80% of Australians want that, including coalition voters, we work to try and protect the funding of schools and hospitals. Again, the majority of Australians want to protect the funding of our schools and hospitals. We've worked on marriage equality and, and many other issues that the majority of the people want to see action on. And that's what helps us to, I guess, strike a chord with um, so many people, and to, which can lead to people turning up to volunteer or take action in a range of ways. Whereas I don't see see the same sort of passion for the things that people like Eric Betts and Corey Bernardi stand for. You know, they they want to give um, massive tax cuts to major corporations. They've stood, you know, they've run big campaigns to defund the ABC or cut hospital and school funding. 
uh, and so on and so forth. There certainly are issues that um, resonate with the the hard right and there's a constituency out there, but I don't know that people are going to turn out to volunteer and to take action on these things on a regular basis. You just can't imagine people getting as passionate for those kind of issues. And another one that Abetz and Bernardi love, of course, is getting rid of 18C um, mm. to give them back the right to you know, racially discriminate people and, and cause offence and harm. It's just not the kind of issue you can imagine a grassroots campaign rumbling towards, can you? No, look, nobody really wants that. I mean, this is a really, it's a really academic issue in many respects. Like we can see why the likes of Erica Betts wants more freedoms to say bigoted and racist things. But um, most Australians don't, including conservatives. They understand the nature of the laws that we currently have. They understand that it's totally reasonable to have legal repercussions for those who are engaging in that sort of behaviour. And but at the end of the day, you know, there's nobody rallying in the streets to mm. to ban 18C. Uh, so yeah, I think it's unlikely we'll see much more than a front group out of Erica Betts and Corey Bernardi's latest attempts at um, recreating Get Up. So Corey Bernardi and the Australian Conservatives are not keeping you awake at night, Paul. No, not at all. I mean, as I say, good luck to them if um <laughs> if, if they if there's more grassroots participation that comes about as a result if. If it leads to Corey Bernardi and Erica Betts listening more to what the community wants, then that's got to be a great thing, right? You know, mm. I grew up in Tasmania where Erica Betts is from and, and I encourage him to get out and try and engage the community to, to see why people haven't turned out to volunteer at his events or to take action with his, his conservatives.org because hopefully it'll lead him to realize that his views are actually very detached from where the majority of his constituents are and the people that he thinks are with him are just not there. I'm not sure whether Erica Betts has the capacity to have that realisation, mate, but uh, <laughs> I guess we'll, we'll see. They don't get the grassroots concept. They don't understand the kind of things that get people excited and, and make people want to participate, but Get Up clearly do. Since 2005, when Get Up started, and for our listeners' benefit, my research has told me that Get Up started when John Howard took control of the Senate. He already mm. had control of the lower house, of course. So it was a really scary time for progressives in Australia to think that a very conservative prime minister had controls of both houses. So Get Up started and their simple message at the very beginning was, we're watching you. You've grown Get Up membership to over a million members across the country. So understanding grassroots movements is at the very core of Get Up. What's the strategic imperative behind that, mate? When you are having meetings, when you're thinking and having discussions with people within the organizations, what are the kind of principles that drive you? The first principle for us is we look at an issue and think, how is it that by people taking action together, it's coming together to raise their voice, to you know, share their, their time and efforts or contribute some of their finances towards a greater whole that they can have a sway on the issue that they're really angry about, inspired by, passionate about in some way that, that speaks to the values in which motivates them in their lives, whether that's wanting Australia to be a fair country to, to make sure that there is justice for all or to see that we have a flourishing environment and flourishing communities. So that's, that's where we start. And um, you know, I've worked in other NGOs and for a very, very short period in the business community. And it's a very different way to think about things. You know, if it was a business context, our starting point would be, how do we give more power to our customers? How do we hand over some of what we have to them? And it's the same in other NGOs I've worked at. When I've worked in the past, it's been about how do I design the campaign, you know, through 
expert reports or lobbying and so forth to to get the outcome I want. That's not where we begin. We begin with how do we give our members the opportunity to be part of this? Because other groups are great at the inside track piece of work to to do the lobbying, to do the research, to have um, influence in that way. The, where we see GetUp's role is, is how do we give that opportunity back to the community, back to the people that, that are actually often quite frustrated with what our politicians are doing and want an opportunity to have a say. But also because we actually fundamentally believe that it's one of the most powerful things that we can do. You know, we can, there are always going to be vested interests and, and um, ideologies that can take our country in a dangerous direction. So that I, think, I think it's, you know, very powerful to see a more engaged population who are holding politicians to account or even better to get involved in, you know, deliberating on decisions or forming policy or running a local community group themselves. And we we just really want to see people to have more agency over where our country goes. So participation is the key. And at the, the core of that is selecting the issues that you choose to campaign on. What are the core issues for GetUp at the moment? Do you always have a, a running list of the top five or the top 10 that changes depending on what's being discussed in parliament or what decisions are being made? Where, where are you at the moment with your key issues? Well, the one of the ways that we identify what to work on is by asking our members as a, you know, an organization that aspires to be member-led. That's one of the things that we can, can do. And so we do that once a year. We go out and give our entire membership the opportunity to fill out our vision survey, which is a, a long process actually. It can take people from 30 to 40 minutes to ask lots of questions and give us lots of feedback on how we're doing as an organization, the ways they want to engage, but also importantly, the issues that they think we should be working on. And then on a regular weekly basis, which reflects where politics is up to, we again go out and ask them similar questions around, well, this is what's happening in parliament, but what do you think we should be working on? Because there are other opportunities emerging. And then thirdly, we measure what people are passionate about taking action on by what people are taking action on. So we test a lot of things. We'll often have campaigners develop up opportunities on a range of different areas and put those out to members. And sometimes the staff have got that judgment wrong that there's not energy behind an issue or a tactic that they thought there might be. And so we have to go away and think about it again. So we try to have a number of touch points to see where the progressive community across Australia is up to, where GetUp members are up to and what they want to take action on. And over the years, there's been a number of recurring themes that we've sort of kept coming back to GetUp members, I think in almost every year of GetUp have voted climate change and renewable energy as their number one issue. Another Other recurring themes are protecting the funding of public services. In some years when it's been under threat, that's looked at things like the ABC or the CSIRO. In more recent years, it's actually come back to the health system and our schools. So people have increasingly felt the pressure of not getting good enough care in their local hospital or the children aren't getting the sort of education they'd envisage. So that's increasingly becoming a hot topic. And then the fair treatment of people seeking asylum, it's been mm. a recurring issue that you know, many Australians have been really upset with the way we're treating um, those people fleeing countries that are war-torn or facing dictators or facing terrorism and have um, come to us seeking um, support in their hour of need. So that's been another recurring one. And the list goes on, but the point being that we those issues do change and we find lots of different um, opportunities for people to, to get involved on a small scale at times by you know switching their household energy supplier to a 
a renewable provider through to, to big ticket items where we've you know campaigned for large policy reforms that have sometimes necessitated working away at an issue over many years. Hey, Paul, one of the very few criticisms I read about from the, the progressive side of politics, of course, there's a lot of criticism about get up from the conservative side of politics, but about the only thing I read that was negative from the progressive side was around what you just talked about, the way that you rank order or prioritize the issues that you target. Apparently, the 2015 survey showed that your members were very keen for you to focus on refugees, fossil fuels, climate change, and the development of coal mines near the Great Barrier Reef, all of which you have done and talked about. But the survey also suggested that members ranked same-sex marriage as 16th as a priority, but there's been a lot of get-up work. How do you correlate the urge that you have to work on something that is such a prominent issue at the moment when your members suggest that it's not so important to them? How do you internally discuss and think about that? Yeah, well, there's a couple of things there. The first is in relation to the recent campaigns around marriage equality is we also have to look for opportunities for wins. Like our our movement is not here to engage in politics just for its own sake. We, We do see that as a very powerful form of improving our democracy, of getting better outcomes. But that our, our starting point is always how do we actually get outcomes? How do we get the policies changed? How do we get these programs funded that, that people have wanted to see progress on? And the issue of marriage equality has, is one of those that GetUp members have prioritized differently over the last decade, and it's, but it's in front of our parliament right now. So we have to bring that, that up the stack to ensure that we seize the moment and opportunity because that's what politics is about. It's about identifying mm-hmm. key moments where change can be created. You know, we, we've got a long way to go to get more progressive outcomes for our economy, for instance. There are a whole bunch of really important policy reforms there that our members see as a priority, but the opportunities just aren't there right, there, there right now. So we can't just bash our head against a wall hoping it were otherwise. We have to seize the opportunities that are there. And sometimes we can create those opportunities ourselves like we did in the recent federal election campaign. But other times we have to work with where the national debate is up to or what's in front of our federal parliament. And sometimes the the other part of the answer to this question is that there are issues that we think are important conversations for the country to have. It hasn't always been a top issue amongst the get, even the GetUp membership to see the fair treatment of it asylum seekers coming to our country. This is an issue that GetUp has, uh, many of our members have seen as crucial. And so we've had to have that conversation with the movement a number of times to to sort of really outline the context, the the fundamental basis in values of uh, and um, in human rights and those sort of things. That is a debate that just isn't occurring in the wider political narrative. Like you don't um, get that sort of a discussion happening through the Murdoch press, for instance. So there is a time and a space for us to, as a, um, I guess, as a staff base, to take a leadership position there and say that mm. this is an issue that maybe it isn't top priority for our movement right now, but maybe it should be. And so let's let's have that conversation and, and see. And sometimes, you know, we get that right and the membership go, yep, actually, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. Let's get into this one. And other times we get it wrong and, and the energy is just not there and we have to move on to something else. You stole my line there, mate. You're exactly right. You are the leaders of the organization. It's a it's a grassroots organization for sure, but it does have a leadership and, and sometimes leaders need to make decisions that aren't always going with the flow of thought. I flipped that around on its head when I read that criticism and I thought, well, what if the current debate was going on about same-sex marriage and GetUp wasn't part of it? If GetUp did treat it as its 16th priority, 
people would be screaming out about, hey, where's GetUp on this? And you'd say, oh, we're just following what our members said. It's our 16th priority right now. We can't respond to what's going on. I mean, that'd be a crazy situation. Well, I think that's right. I mean, and I think our members would feel the same way when it is in the front pages of the newspapers. And that's one of the reasons why I think it's great that organizations like GetUp exist. Obviously, I do. But, um, but I mean, <laughs> we have staff who we can engage to become experts in, you know, grassroots power and and policy change and those sort of topics. So hopefully that we can see an issue that's going to come up three or four months down the track that maybe our members haven't, that isn't in the news cycle yet, that we can prepare for. So I think you're you're right that even our own membership, I think, would be outraged that we weren't on the marriage equality debate. Earlier in the year, they might have seen it as a low priority. That's not going to come up this year, or maybe it will happen eventually, and so it's a done deal. But we've seen those opportunities and been able to move on it as a result. So that's that's one answer to the question. And then the second part of it is like, you're right, we we are an organization that has a staff base. We do have to take leadership positions. We're not, you know, purely grassroots at all. That's one of the natures of GetUps that we our members entrust us to go and do research on these issues, to to develop a strategy and to make a call on many aspects of, of what this organization does. And so that's a a responsibility we take, you know, very seriously and in always are trying to listen to the members. But but ultimately at the end of the day, there are many points at which we have to make a call to decide on which issues are important and how we work on those things and where we exercise our political power. Have you ever considered using the podcast format to deliver training and development programs to your people? Flexible, cost-effective, convenient and incredibly engaging. Talk to David today about tailoring a program to suit your needs. Speaking of the leadership of GetUp, Paul, you are the third national director after Simon Shake and Sam I'm, McQueen. I'm the four, fourth, actually. You're um, the fourth. Tell me about that. Well, the first was Brett Solomon. He um, right. was brought in as the, the very first person. Um, mm. He wasn't even the first staff member, actually. The first staff member was Rosie, who was the accounts manager. So, so Brett was, um, you know, working as a volunteer to the two founders, Jeremy Hymans and David Madden and uh, and also, sorry, Amanda Tattistall. And so the three founders there. And the, they and then um the so the, the then came in Brett Solomon and eventually uh as you mentioned following Simon Shake and then Sam McLean and, and now myself. So yeah, I'm I'm number four. Oh, number four. What about that massive hole in my research, mate? How embarrassing. <laughs> so you all right, I'll, I'll go back. You're number four. You're the fourth national director and They've each brought their own thing. And of course, I don't know about uh, Brett because I didn't research him, but Simon Shake and Sam McLean, they brought their own achievements to it. And, and our listeners will maybe, sadly, most remember Simon Shake as the man who passed out on Q&A, sitting right next to Sophie Mirabella, who sort of treated him like he had leprosy while he was needing a bit of medical care. Now, they each brought their own flavor to the role, of course, and have, and have been able to point to significant achievements as they've walked away. Is what we saw in the 2016 federal election, the direct and targeted campaigns in the seats of the six most right-wing MPs going to be your stamp on the job? Is this your fingerprint? Well, I hope it's the beginning of the impact that my leadership can have with this organization and where our movement goes. Uh, you know, I want it to be really direct in the strategy that we took to this election campaign to demonstrate what I knew to be just huge people power that this movement and 
both of those people that have participated, volunteered with GetUp over the last 10 years have created, but also the predecessors in the staff base, the national directors and the founders and others that have put so much into this. And you know that um, that is something that I that felt risky at the time to not just in terms of doing it, but the fact that we put it out there, we we didn't keep this as a secret strategy or something that we could not tell people about. We and in doing so, we really heightened the the risk of failure. That if we you know told everyone we're going to go and unseat these guys and failed to do so, that you know, you know I'd be weakening in a sense the organisation that it would look embarrassing, but. We put it out there and I think, you know, the results speak for themselves that we were able to demonstrably shift votes away from the hard right. And that is something that is really powerful. You know, politicians only exist when they get it, can get voted in again mm. each election cycle. And now we have something new that we've never had before. We have this threat looming over them that, that if you lead with racism and bigotry, if you are attacking the fundamental institutions that Australians love, if you are making it harder to be able to see a doctor or get that emergency healthcare or to see your children properly educated, you will be judged at the next election cycle. And this is a power that they cannot take away from GetUp, despite all the threats that they might level against us or try and change policies here or there to block GetUp being involved in election cycles. Fundamentally, democracies are about people engaging in politics. And, and I want that to be something that the politicians take very seriously and there's nothing better than hitting them at the ballot box. So um, hopefully that'll, this will be the start of, you know, of the fingerprint with my, of my fingerprint that will become some footsteps that will lead to, a, to um, a stampede. Well, it's a good start, mate. So you came on board GetUp almost exactly a year to go before the federal election. And for the first time, GetUp really targeted, as we've just talked about, directly the seats of some real hard right players, people like Andrew Nikolic, Peter Dutton, George Christensen. I think you claimed Andrew Nikolic as a scalp. And these people noticed, and, and it was all over the news the night of the election, some of the reasons these guys and girls lost their seats, get up was put forward as one of the major reasons. Take us inside the conversations that took place in get up as you were formulating that strategy. You mentioned there somewhere that it felt risky at the time and you had to go public. Was it all very deliberate? Tell us about that conversation, the decision-making process. Well, look, under Tony Abbott, so you know, thinking back to that era, it probably doesn't take your, your listeners much to evoke what that felt like for most Australians, mm. including coalition voters. The, Tony Abbott was pushing an agenda that really felt wrong just to, to everyone and that was reflected in the polls. You know, the sort of things he was doing were just outrageous and hurting our communities and people could see that. They could feel how Australia could change under his leadership. And then not long after that, I came into the role of national director. I'd, I'd been in GetUp for four years at this point and um, came in to be the, the national director, a great opportunity. And to me, it felt great. This is so easy, right? We've got Tony Abbott, stands against <laughs> everything that our movement stands for, you know, the strategy rights itself. A few months mm. later, we end up with Malcolm Turnbull and we saw a real surge in the support for Malcolm Turnbull. And, and for us, that wasn't a surprise for two reasons. One was, of course, everyone felt relieved. Great. Tony Abbott's gone. So I think whoever came in next, people were going to like more. But secondly, Malcolm Turnbull d does hold a number of moderate and progressive views on a range of issues from same-sex marriage that we've already discussed through to you know, a number of positions he's taken in the past around renewable energy and so on and so forth. And we saw that reflected in our membership. So again, we survey and we could see that people thought that he was going to be pretty good. And so it started to me to become a real question around, okay, well, where do we take this? This is, this is complex and a, and a challenge. 
And I was reflecting on the vote within the coalition, which was really close when they had to vote. All the MPs and all the senators within the coalition had to vote on which leader they wanted, Malcolm Turnbull or Tony Abbott. And it was really close. And Malcolm Turnbull only won because members of the hard right faction, sorry, not the hard right, but members of the right faction in Victoria shifted from Tony Abbott to Malcolm Turnbull. And so we're talking about, you know, half a dozen votes were, were in it basically. And we we know what happened in the past when we think back to when Malcolm Turnbull was op- opposition leader, he put up his hand to support Labor passing an emissions trading scheme and quickly mm. got ousted as leader. And it was so, his undoing, wasn't it? It was his undoing, yeah. He lost the, the leadership of the party at that time. And so it was pretty clear that the same thing was going on here, that he was only, you know, leader of the party with um, – with a sort of wing and a prayer, basically, that if, you know, the things were to change, that they would probably get rid of him again. And he'd made a number of commitments to get the seat, which was going to make it really difficult. And so it became sort of apparent very quickly, actually, I guess it only took a few months that the disappointment factor started to settle in, that it was clear that he wasn't going to be the moderate or progressive leader that many people had expected. And we believe, and our analysis showed that the reason for this was because of the the power of this hard right faction within the coalition. So there's five factions or so, depending on who you talk to within the coalition. There are there are moderates, there are people of the right, and then there's the hard right. And we think that they've been having a really disproportionate influence, not only over the coalition, but over the direction of our entire parliament when we've had the coalition in control. And even the influence they have on shaping the national debate from you know John Howard and Tony Abbott, just really you know blowing the dog whistle to foster racism and so forth. So these are really influential individuals and also we don't think that they represent the view of the majority of Australians. They hold quite extreme positions that are quite damaging and risky for our communities. So we wanted to take them out and we didn't know if this would change the outcome of an election or not, but our position was maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe if we can remove the influence of this hard right faction, maybe even Malcolm Turnbull can be a great leader and you know, GetUp's not here to back in any one political party. We want to see outcomes on our issues and Ultimately, for a campaigner, sort of Nirvana, the ultimate end state is when both parties support what you're after because then you can pack up your bags and go home, right? Can't so lose. Yeah. yeah. So if both parties are saying, great, we want a 100% renewable energy economy, we're going to get there in the next 15 years, you're done. You know, they'll, they'll work it out. But if you don't have that, then it can change within any electoral cycle. So, so for us, going after the hard right, you know, had hopefully, you know, win-win that, um, you know, we – we could see a position where we there might be a change of government, but also we could see a position where if we were successful, there might be that space for Malcolm Turnbull to step in to be the leader that potentially he wanted to be or to certainly respond to public opinion, which would have demonstrated there was appetite for a more progressive, more moderate Australia. I think that that opportunity is there to this day. At the recent federal election of around the 12 or so MPs and the coalition that lost their seat, eight of them were from the hard right. So that balance has changed within the party. The problem for Malcolm Turnbull is, of course, though, that he's lost a range of seats and he's only holding on to parliament by one seat. So unfortunately now the hard right and anyone within his party still has that hanging over him that they can create a lot of trouble for for him if they don't get their way. But, but I still think the opportunity for Malcolm Turnbull to lead in, in a way that is more progressive is there for him to take and that he would win more support from the Australian public if he was to stand up and take that opportunity. So that opportunity I think is there for him to step into that and um, and that's that was our strategy I guess and, and, and is still I think pertinent to this day to, to, as I say, to reflect on what we're seeing from the current parliament. 
as you were describing your strategy, your plan, I couldn't help but think how clever it is. It became really obvious to me how clever it is because like you say, even if the coalition had of one parliament, even with a, a nice majority, because there was a time where Turnbull was very popular, if you could take out his hard right faction, he wouldn't be a slave to them as a lot of commentators suggest that he is right now. If you had have been successful in, say, Peter Dutton's seat or George Christensen's seat, you would have almost been doing Malcolm Turnbull a favour. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, George Christensen, um, Peter Dutton, these guys at times are really trying to take out Malcolm Turnbull. You know, they've they've mm. been some of the biggest critics of Malcolm Turnbull since the election. You know, Erica Betts has been out there very openly undermining Malcolm Turnbull and his leadership. They've been leveling threats against him if he doesn't do what they say on things like superannuation reforms to benefit the the ultra wealthy. So they've you know threatened to leave and create their own party. Um, you know there was mm. we were talking earlier about the their desire to create their own version of GetUp, but many people think what they're really saying is a threat to Malcolm Turnbull that if we don't get our way, we'll we'll go and create another party called the Conservative Party. So you know these people, you know Malcolm Turnbull should should be thankful for our strategy. I don't don't think yeah. he quite don't think he quite sees it that way, but. But, um, I was but, going to ask that, that if you ever got a quiet call from Malcolm Turnbull during the campaign thanking you for your work. No, I've not actually. And look, you know, <laughs> and, and, and I do wish there'd be greater degrees of communication between, and not so much, you know, Malcolm Turnbull and myself, but certainly, you know, his party, his um, staff and supporters that they could see that there's an opportunity here, that there's an appetite for progressives to support him, to support a leader despite the factor there from the coalition that if they were to take good policies to the electorate, I think they would find backers there and then they would become less beholden to people like Erica Betts and Corey Bernardi. I would think that the fact that people like Bernardi, Christensen, Dutton, Abetz, they haven't formed their own political party is probably an insight to the fact that they know their views represent a tiny portion of Australia. If they were really that confident that what they're saying is representing a huge percentage of the silent majority, wouldn't they go out and form this amazing party that is representing all these people? Of course they would. I would suspect that it suggests they know very well that that they're an extreme view. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you look at Erica Betts in Tasmania, he's always going to get elected because he's number one on the Senate ticket down there. But he gets a few fat thousand votes. You know, he he um, you know, barely attracts a vote at all, really, by popular mm. standards. So, so yeah, these guys really couldn't stand on their own two feet in terms of attracting popular support. You know, they might be competing with some one nation votes and and be able to drag <laughs> some off that. But that's a noisy minority, is is my opinion. And even with the one nation, like they are having a big influence on our current political debate. But they've attracted still a small portion of Australians in support of, of their quite radical extreme agenda. Geez, you came close with Peter Dutton, didn't you? That would be a scalp I imagine you would love to have gotten. Yeah, look, I mean, from a leadership point of view, the the, uh, the focus around Peter Dutton was, a, again, a challenging one because he, you know, in 2013 won that seat with quite a solid margin. And so it was a tough decision to go in and focus on him. But he is a particularly strong leader within this hard right faction. So, you know, he's really someone, he's a bit of a linchpin. And mm. and others thought the seat was unwinnable, you know. So GetUp was really one of the few organizations that put a lot of effort into the seat of Dixon in the um, northern suburbs of Brisbane there. And in hindsight, I wish we'd, we'd done more because we what we saw in that seat was 
double the statewide average in Queensland swing against Peter swing. Dutton. Mm. So it was a huge swing. It's now a very marginal seat. And I, th- I suspect that he won't be able to hold it at the next federal election, given how out of touch his views are. But but yeah, you do look back and wonder, geez, is there a bit more we could have done and um, you know, focus less on another area to focus more within that seat because it would have been a great thing for the Australian Parliament not to have Peter Dutton returning for the next three years. <laughs> oh, wouldn't it? You know, I don't live in Peter Dutton's seat, but I am a Brisbane person and I have had the misfortune of stumbling across him just, you know, at a shopping centre and, and a local pool of all places and walking past the man... It's a very strange experience to walk past him. There's a real darkness about him. And I I don't know that I've met too many evil people in my life, but there is this bleak aura around Peter Dutton. Maybe that's my lens because I know what he does and I know what he stands for, but I got this, it was almost like a feeling I had coming from the man. Yeah, I can, I know exactly what you mean. I've, you know, run into John Howard a number of times in the street or in the halls of parliament and and I think he actually approached his agenda with a, a degree more of credibility than somebody like Peter Dutton. Like in the election campaign, when we saw Peter Dutton saying things like illiterate, innumerate refugees are going to take your jobs. You know, this really, mm. really just playing to the most basic underhanded sort of tactics that had absolutely no credibility and no real standing for a statesman of any kind. So, you know, I think he is a, is a particularly uh, underhanded individual with the way he approaches politics. And uh, you look, you know, they're the sort of people that we you know, don't really need to see shaping the direction that our country takes. We need to see leaders with credibility, with authenticity, you know, that are putting up values and, and things that they believe in, not trying to manipulate and dog whistle the community with bigotry and racism to get the political outcomes that they want in the short term to shore up their seats or to build more power within their political parties. Now, we'll move on from these bleak characters very soon, I promise. But I want to ask you this. When you think about those kind of issues, let's say marriage equality, the way we treat refugees, our stance on climate change and and renewable energy, there's got to be others that are really obvious or even just economic equality and tax cuts for the rich and, and the large corporations and tax avoidance and instead going after welfare recipients, all of those kind of things that you stand for. Given that we accept the few politicians we've been talking about probably don't have an ota of empathy in their soul, yet they would have a view of history. I wonder how do they view the future? Isn't it kind of obvious that they're going to be on the wrong side of history in every one of these issues that they stand for? That at some point, our society is going to accept gay marriage. It's going to accept that we're doing the wrong things by refugees. It's going to accept that economic equality is the best way to grow an economy, all of those things, they're going to be on the wrong side of history. Do they care? It's a really good question. I mean, it's a, it's a really interesting point. I also think about that same question in regards to Malcolm Turnbull, though, that you know, surely he can see that the majority of the public support these things and that whilst it might seem extremely hard and we can't underestimate how hard it must be to be in the position that he is now only holding the government by one seat, but still, there's an opportunity to turn things around here that he must be able to see that he knows in his heart of hearts that we need to transition our economy, that passing legislation through the parliament is the right thing to do, but he's not taking that opportunity. So I think you know the adaptive challenges that are before him are hard, but the the lost opportunity I think will, will haunt him. You know, this will he's worked mm-hmm. towards this for many years, and he does risk losing the next election, which on current polling he would do. And what's he going to look back and have achieved? Very, very, very little. 
and nothing that he, I don't think, would stand proudly before his grandchildren and say, look, here's what I achieved with my time as leading the Australian populace. You know, it's it's going to be a very, very underwhelming legacy, more coloured by his opposition with his, within his own party, unless he can mm. find the um, ability to stand up. But, um, but with, I think, people like Erica Betts and Corey Bernardi, you know, they have a very radical ideology that's an article of faith they will keep pursuing regardless of if they're the only person left believing in it. I think Erica Betts will be um, you know, yelling at the sea as the tide rises. <laughs> I just can't help but think how badly history will treat those characters. But as you say, they don't care. Their their extreme ideology is a, is a far stronger driver than anything the history books will say about them. Anyway, let's leave those bleak characters behind, mate, and talk a little bit more about you because I'm intrigued. I mean, you've you've got such a high-profile job. You're the fourth national director, as we know. Some of the guys that came before you, Simon Shake, 22, Sam McLean, 24. It's a youthful organisation, isn't it? Yeah, it absolutely has been. There's um, been a lot of energy, a lot of innovation, you know, a lot of great ideas of just fresh thinking of how can we approach these challenges of getting these changes that we need to see, that we know that people want to see. So, you know, um, my predecessors have brought a really fresh approach to to the the area of campaigning, to the area of social change that at times has lacked in innovation. I hate to say it, you know, I've worked for some other NGOs and they do great work, but I think this sector, you know, really needed a shakeup and my predecessors really provided that and did something new. So, um, you know, a lot of innovation, good use of technology, making it you know easy and simple for people to engage in politics and and championing issues they they saw that um, were important at the time. Hey, I saw this video of you and Sam McLean. He was handing over to you, and Sam was standing there in a pair of jeans and a t-shirt, a bit of a ratty t-shirt actually, an old get-up <laughs> t-shirt, and you were in a suit. I was wondering, was that deliberate optics? Was that showing a new direction for get-up, or was that just a portrayal of your personality against Sam's, or was it just complete accident? I think it's the latter two. I think it was probably a bit of personality thing that that um, in my head, you know, if I'm going on camera, you know, need to look a bit formal, a bit smart. Uh, <laughs> uh, and, and secondly, just a coincidence. Like we we didn't plan it in that way. I actually literally remember turning up to this the shoot, and Sam and I had arrived from other meetings or something of that nature, and seeing him in a t-shirt and going, "Oh, dude, I want, maybe I should go and put a t-shirt on," and him being like, "Doesn't matter, let's just do it." <laughs> Um, so I think it's you know, I think it's a bit of personality there that that uh, yeah he felt really comfortable in the t-shirt and so would uh, a lot of our members I'm sure. So of course, leading into the your current role, one of your main achievements has been the role you played in Tasmania, preventing guns from building a pulp mill, and in the process saving 160,000 hectares of Tasmanian forest. What did you take away from that experience? Well, growing up in Tasmania, you know, really could see the huge opportunity that the state had in the going down the direction of really valuing the things that it had, which were unique, which were an amazing wilderness asset base of literally the cleanest air in the world of just, you know, really grounded, wonderful communities that were just such an amazing place to grow up. You know, I grew up in Northwest Tasmania and um, just absolutely had the most amazing childhood and upbringing that a person could hope for and and it's sort of always seen those opportunities um, in agriculture in tourism in you know high-end agriculture not uh, mass production but in really great products in high-end foods and so forth and the state moving in that direction and you know the pulp mill came along and was a massive threat to that it was 
going to double the rate of logging at the time. It was going to be a huge consumer of old growth and ancient forests and be a mass source of pollution into the Bass Strait and therefore a threat to the, the fishing industry, not to mention the, the local whole range of industries and community health in the Tamar Valley, an area that's really traditionally struggled in terms of employment, but I think has been turning a corner as it's embraced tourism and high-end agriculture. So I took on that campaign and look, it's you know just a number of things have you know been really important lessons for me. Well, we, one of them was that we could see that we weren't going to get the outcome we were after from politics. Ironically, I've talked a lot about politics tonight, but we had both major parties down there really backing in the logging company Guns Limited and their executives who were very close to many of the political leaders at that time. And so we just by necessity had to think more laterally of like, well, what are we going to do? We're not going to get the government standing in the way of this thing. They were doing the opposite. They were changing laws to try and get this pulp mill built where it would have otherwise broken laws. So we started to focus on the finance sector. You know, They were a key decision maker. This was a $2.6 billion project from a company that was worth about $800 million and had a lot of debt. We didn't know how much debt, but we knew how a lot. And so we knew that the bankers and other investors would be key decision makers. So I ran a long campaign, a lot of the work behind the scenes, building relationships, doing research, getting to understand the finance sector to demonstrate to the finance sector that the risks of getting involved with guns outweighed any potential rewards that might come if the, the project was ever built and was profitable. And ultimately, we were able to convince Gunn's own banker, the ANZ, that had been Gunn's banker for about 12 years at that stage, to publicly declare that they wouldn't fund the project. And after that, I worked chasing a bit of a wild goose chase, chasing other banks around the world, other potential finance partners, and convinced around 20 leading international banks and, and other investors not to fund the project. And so that sort of started to grind to a halt. But then we sort of started to think, well, you know, this is sort of unfolding over a number of years that we really, if we were ever going to see the forest saved, it was probably not going to happen as long as guns were standing in the way because they had such big political connections. They'd had a big influence on previous federal election cycles with Mark Latham and so on. And so we started to try and see if we could influence the the shape that guns would take. We you know, we started to lobby their shareholders, their board members, and started to demonstrate, show to them that this business model was not going to work, that the company would be in a lot of trouble unless they found a more sustainable business model, which would necessitated using the plantation timber. So, you know, trees that have been grown purposely grown for for the timber industry or for creating paper and getting that done in a sustainable way. We felt that there could be a future in that direction, but not in uh, the old, you know, sort of the equivalent of the whaling industry and logging old growth forests and turning them into cheap pulp and paper products. And ultimately, the, the company did make that change. They got rid of their their chairman and current and their CEO at the time, John Gay. He'd been really leading the company in the right right wing, sorry, in the wrong direction. Um, and he, he was he, he's friends with many of the people of the right wing faction of the Liberal Party. Funnily enough, Erica Betts and others are big backers of John Gay. I'm sure. And they brought in some, yeah. Who would have thought, hey? And they brought yeah. in somebody new, somebody new who could see a different pathway. And um, he, you know, set to move the company out of old growth logging into into set it in a di- different direction. But unfortunately, it was a case of being too late that the company was too indebted and too damaged from being sort of used as a political vehicle for so many years that the company wasn't able to turn the corner. But ultimately, we were able to negotiate good support for many people in the timber industry to make the transition or to exit the industry to um, provide other investments into regional Tasmania. 
many of those businesses are existing quite successfully today, whether they be um, cottage industries like beer and other food things or, or larger things that are going on down in the state, which is great. And then also we were able to, to uh, negotiate with the logging industry and with the government of the day, the protection of 160,000 hectares of, of ancient forests that the majority of Australians have wanted to see protected, that they see that value there as a global asset for all, all people for all time, but also as a real sort of attractor for Tassie to, to find you know, more employment in the tourism sector, which, which is now the case today, that there are far more people employed in Tasmania in uh, tourism than there are in extractive industries like logging old growth forests. Paul, you're a very clever man. That is such a clever strategy. It's so much more than chaining yourself to a bulldozer, as worthy a cause as that is. But you did it the smart way. You hit them with the finances. You convinced shareholders that there was a better business model. Then you looked after the people who were involved in the timber industry and found a better industry for them to get involved in. Very clever stuff, mate. And, and you've answered partly my next question. So you move on from that and you, you walk away from that being a big part of a big victory and you become the national director of GetUp. Tell me why you, why did you get the job? Was it a, a keenly sought after job? Was there some hot competition? I'm assuming there was. And, and if so, why you? Why Paul Oosting? That's a good, that's a good question. I, I don't know if I'm the right person to answer it in a way. I mean, I think I've, you probably been, are. <laughs> I've been at GetUp for four years before this and and I actually really enjoyed the sort of work that I'd been doing. I got to work on a lot of really interesting projects and campaigns. And so some of it was campaigning, some of it was projects around how can we get people to switch their household energy supply or get more innovative in the way we're thinking about doing strategy and tactics. And uh, I've got two boys. Um, one of them's five years old and the other's just turned nine months. And I'd been thinking, this is great. I mean, if anything, maybe I can do a bit less work and, you know, this is just sort of, you know, enjoy being a, fa- a new father. And then the opportunity came up to to apply for the role of national director of GetUp and I had to take a real step back and think, well, okay, this is not what I had in mind, but, you know, do I want to step up to this role? And and I could see the sort of potential that we've just realized at this recent federal election, I guess. I, and I found that like just a really exciting on the one hand and just a massive responsibility to, to step in to lead an organization that, that has been really well developed now over the last decade and to you know, hopefully take it to even greater heights that, that I realized I did have a clear vision for where I wanted to see things go next and um, how we could really have you know, clear strategy, more direct impact on the political cycle, and hopefully an opportunity to try and push positive outcomes on those key areas like climate change that I just see as just such a massive threat to Australia, if not the entire world. You know, we need to address these things and we need to do it now, to be honest. We don't have any more time to wait. So for me, it felt like a great opportunity to step up to be able to work on things that I'm passionate about, but also that I, I felt that I had a clear vision to bring to offer to the organization that felt like it had the backing of the members and staff. I don't feel feel that I would have felt that way unless I felt pretty confident that I had their support. And so that's really given me the opportunity to try and make the most of, of what we do over the next couple of years. So you've been in the role a little over a year now. What have you learned in that time? You know, I've... I guess I've learned a lot. The where to begin? The um, you know, I've learned um about the real real strength of teams, of um how the importance of outlining 
what we want to do, um, even when can it, when it can feel risky. And within the, those risks can be as simple as will staff feel okay with this? Will there be internal conflict? What are members going to think? Through to the the bigger stuff we mentioned earlier around election strategies. What if we put it out there and we say we're going to achieve all these great things and then we don't and then I'm seen as a big failure and um, the organization might not be seen as as good as it was before and and those sort of things. So I think that's a leadership lesson that I've taken away from this that um, you have to trust in the people you're working with and um, you but you also have to be willing to burn bridges and that and by that I don't I don't mean that's don't mean that metaphor in the context of breaking relationships I, I mean it in the sense of you know crossing over the river and being willing to set the bridge light behind you to know that this is the way we're going guys like there's no there's no way back there's no point going backwards or or staying where we are and we've only really got one option from here which is to make the most of it to forge off ahead so to me that's been um, a really key lesson is that you've got to got to you got to burn those bridges and um, back yourself. Torch the boats, mate, they say. Now, Simon Shake, when yeah. he left, he left saying that he wanted to reduce his workload. So you stepped into a job as a young father, knowing that it was a fairly big job to be taking on, but it sounds like you're enjoying it thoroughly. And and from the, the things that you've talked about and the way that you've made decisions through a few of their, those campaigns, it sounds like you're a very clever man with a lot of very good ideas. Well, <laughs> well, thanks for saying so. I mean, we've got a great team here at GetUp, which is you know possible because of our supporters. That's, as I say, like one of the real benefits of coming in on the shoulder of giants that we we have um, the members as well as the founders and the previous national directors and staff that have made this thing what it is. But we also have members who back us in. So we've got a solid team here of great people around me. You know, there's rarely a decision that I've made by myself. We've got a great team. We really workshop things out and try to have collaboration around where we go and um, experts in a whole range of fields from from technology and and working with volunteers and mobilizing people through to excellent experts on economic policy and, and campaigning, human rights and environmental issues. So, you know, it's a solid team we've got here. It's a solid movement that supports us and backs us in that makes all of that possible. And so I certainly don't take it any take any of that for granted and certainly don't think that it's, it all comes down to me. So, Paul, three or four years seems to be about the general term from your predecessors. How will you know when it's the right time to move on and, and uh, do something else yourself and let someone else slip into that role of national director? Yeah, look, I've been thinking about this question a bit recently and, and I still don't know that I've completely landed on the right answer for myself. Um, my um, board chair has been posing the same question to me and I think it's a you know, really, really important question to have the right answer for for any anyone at any stage in their career to to know where you go. Like the average career now nowadays is around three or four years, and I think it's also just a, a good time horizon that you can plan out that far in advance. You know, much more much more down the track, it sort of gets a bit abstract, perhaps. But for me, I'm you know I am looking forward to the next three or four years. We've, we'll have another federal election in that time period. Um, not that I think GetUp is all about election cycles or federal election campaigns but for me it is a big challenge to look to see how we can scale this movement now i look at what we achieved at this federal election and we had around three and a half thousand people take really deep volunteer actions from going door knocking or coming and joining a call center or handing out how to vote cards on election day coupled with that we had about thirty-five thousand 
from individuals made making small gift donations to fund ads or to fund the work of our staff team or to fund events and so forth. And so I'm sort of looking at it at the moment and going, what if that was 10 times the scale? You know, what sort of Australia could we see then? It's not about, you know, just for the sake of get up or unseating some more bad politicians. But, you know, I think that would be really exciting. I think that's the sort of legacy that I would like to see because, because I guess I have faith that with that would come better policy decisions that are being made in the decisions of what's good for the majority of Australians in the, in the future of our country. And we would be able to hold politicians to account. They wouldn't be able to get away with acting against the public interest and pulling our country in the wrong direction. So, you know, that's my current answer to your question is hopefully we can do that. The movement wants to scale because ultimately it's a question for them as well. And if they do, then and I'll, I would love to try and steer them through that over the next three or four years and, and we'll then um, happily retire to a um, cafe somewhere and, and make green soup. <laughs> scale big, hey. All right, now, Paul, will we ever see you running for a seat in parliament? Look, I don't think so. Um, I mean, I, I love democracy and I love politics. I'm not so keen on um, on political parties, weirdly. Like, I, I obviously, I love the nature and love all, all of my friends and foes that have made that choice to, to enter politics, but just never felt that that's the right direction for me. You know, I, I love campaigning. I love the fact that we can sit here and think about all the different ways that we could help to create change, whether it's using our household energy bill or going and having a rally and we just have great flexibility with how we can engage in change, engage in our communities. So, you know, I think working in the social change sector for me affords, you know, great creativity and, and opportunity and is, is where I see myself remaining, you know, the federal, the federal political sphere or the local political sphere for that, for that matter is um, a space for, for others and um, good luck to them. Oh, well, we'll see. I, I don't know. You, you've answered very, um, very surely, but we'll see. I'll keep an eye on you. What about <laughs> GetUp members? What, will we ever see GetUp running for seats in an election campaign? Will we ever see GetUp as a political party? Look, I don't know. I don't necessarily think it's where we have at the most power has been my answer to that question over many years. We, at the moment, I think our strength comes, despite what Erica Betzers of the world would say, from the fact that we can work with all political parties. We can apply, hopefully, some pressure to the coalition. We can certainly apply that to the Labor Party, the Greens, the Nick Xenophon team, you know, the Jackie Lambies of the world. So, you know, I think our power as a movement comes from you know, being nonpartisan, from working across party lines. That you know, we we are independent, but we're also you know fiercely political, but not in a, a party political way. So, I think. It's a strength. But that said, look, the, um, the um, politics changes and the political landscape changes and um, the desires of our membership changes. So it's certainly something that we would never rule out. And it's a conversation that comes up from time to time within the Get Up movement. Absolutely. It's, we, I bet it does. When we, um, when we do the vision survey or when we have house parties for people to input into Get Up's vision, it's often a topic of discussion of, well, why don't we stand our own candidates? We'd probably get them elected. Mm. But mm-hmm. is it going to get a better outcome is the question I always come back to. Sure, we might be able to get some people elected into the Senate or even maybe a local seat here or there, but does it definitely get us a better outcome? And I'm not always sure the answer to that question is yes. So so for now, I think um, we're in the right place and is remaining outside the party political sector. Good answer, mate. Now, Paul, I have taken more than enough of your time, but I have. I always end with the same four questions. So I'm going to hit you with four very quick questions so we learn a little bit more about you. Are you ready for it? Absolutely. All right. Tell me about the Saturday night you most look forward to, a big party with lots of people you know or an intimate dinner with your closest friends. 
a glass of wine and a movie with my wife at home is um, perfect for me. All right. That wasn't one of the options, but I'll, I'll take it. I'll... Now, uh, are you more likely to get bogged down in the detail or court daydreaming? Court daydreaming. Mm, I thought you might have said that. All right. What about this one? Are you a slave to rational thought process or do you make decisions based on emotion? Mm, that's a tricky one. I'm definitely leaning towards emotion. Yeah. All right. No, no, go on. Elaborate, please. <laughs> well, I mean, I'd like, I think, like most of us, I'd like to think that I'm rational and weigh up all the options, but I, I'd like to, I don't also adhere to, you know, always linear decision making processes or weighing up all the rational thoughts uh, that, that I should. So we'll go with the emotions. Now, very last question. You're going on a road trip. Do you like to book the hotels, plan the route, and know exactly where you're going, or do you just get in the car and drive? Just drive, mate. Just get amongst it. Awesome. Paul Oosting, I have enjoyed every second of our conversation today. Thank you so much for taking the time. Yeah, I really appreciate the opportunity to speak to you and your listeners and um, all the best. Thanks, Paul. Cheers, David. that was Paul Oosting. What an impressive character. At one point, I asked him why he was the chosen one. Why did he get the job as national director? But I think that's pretty obvious. He's a switched on strategic thinker with passion and empathy, and he's obviously willing to take calculated risks when the rewards are high. I really enjoyed chatting politics with Paul and learning more about an organisation that is only going to get stronger and have more influence on the Australian political landscape. And with Paul at the helm for a few more years, I think some of our most conservative politicians have a few sleepless nights ahead of them. I will also, as always, share the lessons I took from my conversation with Paul. You'll find it on the Team Guru website. That's teams with an S dot guru forward slash podcast. You're welcome to connect with me on LinkedIn or email me directly, david at teams.guru. We're on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Facebook, and Twitter. And I'll be back next week for another episode on this, my mission to bring to life the theory, team, and leadership development. This is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now.